does an organization like Michael J. Fox Foundation treat donor analytics? Well, we grabbed, uh, we grabbed their entire data team and did a podcast. This is what happened. This is Using the Whole Whale, a podcast that brings you stories of data and technology in the nonprofit world. My name is George Weiner, your host and the chief whaler of wholewhale.com. Thanks for joining us. This is part two of a podcast that we uh, did at our live event, Whole Whale U Live. We had four events this year, and this one was around donor analytics and took place on November 10th in our Brooklyn office. And we spoke with two of the data analysts out of the Michael J. Fox Foundation. Uh, we spoke with Luba Smolensky, the Associate Director of Analytics, and Matt Crow, the CRM and Analytics Officer there. And I thought it was interesting because we were able to do a deep dive on how they're using dashboards and analytics and predictive models to then inform the marketing team and strategies that the organization puts forward. You know, we get a little geeky on this, but I thought it was helpful to see how experts are doing it and the value of having these data analysts on your team. Prior to this conversation, I had done a presentation for everyone, emphasizing the fact that, you know, first-time donors, and according to the Association of Fundraising Professionals out there, that we're, we're losing four out of five of our first-time donors year over year. The uh, recidivism uh, retention rate is only about 43% of general donors on average. And so I kind of pushed them on this idea, and I, and I, I pushed them to say, how do, how do they deal with it internally uh, to get their thoughts? And uh, we had a great conversation, and I can't wait you to can't wait for you to hear it. Welcome. I have got from the Michael J. Fox Foundation with me uh, Matt and Luba from uh, from the, the analytics side of things over there. How are you guys doing? Good. Doing good. How are you? Really quickly, <laughs> who are you and what do you do? Starting with Matt. Sure. Um, so I'm. My name is Matt. I'm working in our analytics department of the Michael J. Fox Foundation. So I work with Luba on um, a lot of our reporting needs, putting reports into our business intelligence platform, um, automating some tedious reporting work that people used to do in Excel. We can now do that automatically for them, as well as running various analytics-related projects along the lines of how can we optimize our campaigns, basically how can we raise more money for Parkinson's research. I guess I did this spiel in our department. No, sorry, right. we do a little bit more as well. Um, so I'm Luba. I lead the, our analytics efforts at the Michael J. Fox Foundation. So building off of what Matt has said, not only do we focus on the reporting piece, but we also do a lot of advanced analytics, which then looks at donor analytics from more of a probabilistic perspective and not just counting how many we had one year and how many came back. Because analytics is actually fairly new at the foundation, a lot of our work also involves making people more comfortable with analytics, becoming more familiar with data, how can they use it on their own, and empowering different teams to then do some of their own reporting or use the numbers in their own presentations and in their own strategy, and not just something that we just you know, dole out. So it's been, it's been a lot of fun. So in our conversation, I'm making a big, you know, to do about the fact that oh my gosh, we're only keeping 43% of our, you know, general donors, and then it's even worse, we're only keeping one in five. 
of our first-time donors. What are, you know, staying with you, Luba, what are your thoughts on that? Am I just like throwing my hands in the air for no reason, or is there more thinking that you guys have on this? So donor retention is something that comes up very frequently when we talk to our marketing and development departments. And quite frankly, if you look at it just from an average, you're just, it's not, there's a lot more meat there. So at the foundation, we're fortunate in that our donors actually, we have a variety of different types of donors and different constituents that engage with us. So it's not just these big dollar donors and it's not just a group of small dollar donors either. So when we think about donor retention, it's then important to put it in the context of that donor profile. So if we're looking at folks that will only give $100 and that's where 80% of our volume is coming from, going back to that 80-20 discussion, and a huge chunk of them drop off, well there's a natural turnover that we would expect. and so. When we look at donor retention there, as long as we're doing better than our historical performance, then it's all right if we didn't bring everyone back. But then when we look at folks who are responsible for 80% of our fundraising dollars and a much smaller volume, then the retention expectation changes significantly. And so for that, it's just always keeping in mind what the context is of that particular profile because you're going to talk to them differently, you'll expect different things, and so it's always just kind of keeping in line with that. Interesting, so playing off that a bit more, we were talking about 80-20, where does 80% of that revenue come from? How does, um, how does the data team approach the 80-20 rule when you're thinking about strategy now? So the way that we segment our contacts are into a couple of different groups. Um, one of them is more just our major donors. Um, I'm sure the 80-20 rule applies there. It's a very small number of donors. They very often give tens of millions of dollars. Maybe not very often. Every now and then they will give very significant donations that really counts for a lot of the revenue to give. As um, we have talked about earlier, those tend to be very sort of high-touch donors. We tend to not really target them with Facebook ads so much, as much as give personal phone calls from board members and things along those lines. So a lot of our work is focusing a lot more on the in the 20% uh, to try to raise revenues along those lines. And we are starting to roll out a lot more along lines of identifying which leads and more leads lead to donate. Um, I get that, trying to identify those really big dollar donors. So you talked about categories. One category is obviously the absurdly rich. Right. So that's one, but there are other categories that you look at. Can you can you help us define those for you? Sure. So you also look at we consider some of the mass marketing donors who give much smaller amounts. Uh, we talk a bit about events, and we also have this thing called um, Team Fox. We I think have been working a little bit more Team Fox lately. Right, and that's actually where the Young Professionals group falls into as well. So this is a program that was started at the foundation a few years ago, and it's really just to enable other people to fundraise on behalf of the organization. So if you have a bake sale, or you're running the marathon, or you're doing a masquerade ball, and you want to raise money that way, it's, um, it's how we deal with all of these ambassadors for the foundation. So that's a, a, whole, different, a whole different set of rules apply, totally different animal. And I think to date they've raised over 14 million? Yeah, they're very good at what they do, so. It's we pretty impressive. A lot of small them. things do add up. Yeah, for sure. There's there's a lot of energy, and so there, it's really a lot about how you corral that energy and allow people to do what they really want to do for you on their own terms, but in a way that's still incredibly lucrative. 
So that's interesting and maybe leads us to our next question. Uh, for me, give me a high level of a tool rundown. It seems like you're dealing with some really cool toys and I want to know what they are. Sure. Um, we do have a lot of cool toys. Benefits of being on the analytics team, you get all the technology. So we have a pretty nifty BI platform that we launched. BI? Business Intelligence. Thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. So it is, so we got it about a year ago and it's pretty much just a bunch of dashboards from all of our data sources in one place that update hourly and daily and track all of our metrics across different organizations. So really fun to play with, has some neat visualizations. Before this tool, Matt and I would have been knee deep in spreadsheets that never updated and doing the same pivot tables and 50 transformations every single time. So that's been, it's a very shiny toy. You can also get it on your cell phone so I can like do my work so this, on my phone. And the tool's called Domo, if I'm correct, right? Yes. We're gonna do a shameless plug, it's called Domo. <laughs> um, this is not shameless plugging, this is steal what works from people that are doing it. Sure. Could you say it again? Domo, it's like thank you in Japanese, Domo, D-O-M-O. Um, anyway, so that's, not only is it just like very shiny and has resonated very well with some of our non-technical teams, but also on the back end, it allows you to automate all of these steps and pivot tables and whatnot. So all of our energy that would have been focused on just doing the analysis is now has now pivoted and now we actually focus on interpreting the results, drawing insights, working with teams to tell that story and figuring out what's the next thing that we should do, what's the action item instead of just being so deep in that. And then other tools we have, because it's not the only thing we play with. Um, <laughs> So we talked a little bit about the advanced analytics that we do. We also use R and Python for that. So we have some scripts that are running um, automatically. I'll let Matt talk about the server as well. I think that's yeah, so we set up a server. Um, it's basically just like a computer that we log into where we run a bunch of scripts. So for example, people come to us and say, oh, we have these spreadsheets. We look up value from this spreadsheet, look up match the value in this spreadsheet, we combine them together, we perform this operation on them, and it takes them maybe, say, five hours every single week. So what we do is we have these scripts that we run in there to automate all of that for them. So around once a day, sometimes they run once a week, just perform all the work, all these, all these manual sets that people used to have to perform, and that was just totally automatic. And then usually, a lot of those will then feed into Domo so that rather than having to put them all together themselves, they log into their dashboard for the team and all of a sudden they see these spreadsheets that have been automatically combined for them and they have this outlet for, ready for them to share with the team. What questions are you answering with that process? So what, so the question is what, what's the application of all of these tools? Or no, what are you learning that informs your fundraising? Sure, so we learn a lot. Otherwise, the tools would not would just be shiny with no reason. Um, so, when we work with, and again, this depends on the particular department that we're working with. So, when we go back to the conversation of goals and the types of donors that we're working with, the goals vary. So, when we work with when we work with the marketing team, the goals are about moving people very distinctly through the funnel. So, we have reports set up that look at awareness, that look at engagement, that look at conversion and a lot of 
what we were looking at earlier in regards to Google Analytics, where are people coming from? Are they hitting Facebook and then donating? How are they responding to our emails? So on the marketing side, it's really understanding that channel distribution and how that's performing. When we work with communications, which is also very heavily involved in Domo, they're interested in content performance. So are the blogs resonating well with people? Are a lot of visits going to the blogs? What's the page view like? What's the, is there any content that's performing very well that can be recycled? So it very much varies by department, which makes a tool like this and all of these automations incredibly relevant because there's just so many questions and so many different types of analyses that it's just better to set it up once, let it run, and then use that for discussion. So I want to move to a super geeky question because I know I can ask it of you guys. Um, those of you listening at home, we all have glasses on, so yeah. <laughs> Uh, can you explain your probabilistic donor modeling and the attributes that go into it? Sure. Um, I can explain. And explain what that means. Sure. So I'll explain what that means at a high level, and then I think Matt can pitch on some of the sure. data and levers that have come out of that. So when we think about donor analytics or donor retention, or even the step before you're a donor where you're just a lead, how can we actually understand what is the likelihood that you will donate for the first time or that you will come back and donate a second time? So, in, so there are a few ways we can go about it. We can just take a magic eight ball, roll some dice, flip a coin. That's the way George wants us to do it. Um, <laughs> so we can go that way. Obviously, it's totally ineffective, even though probably very amusing. We can come up with some rules, like if they haven't donated in three years, they're never going to donate again. Or if they responded to an email and attended a webinar, then they're definitely going to donate. But that's also a bit arbitrary. So instead, we rely on some pretty advanced, well, advanced but definitely accessible st um, statistics that instead frame this just from a probabilistic view. So what is the probability that someone will donate? If you know five different things about them, what is the likelihood that they'll come? And so then it changes the conversation, not just from some random yes or no, but now it's there's a 30% likelihood. Okay, that means something. I'll message them accordingly. There's an 80% likelihood, or they're definitely going to come back anyway, so maybe you just stay the course and let them convert. But we look at a lot of very interesting data to get to this very high-level objective. You want to touch on yeah. that? <coughs> And one of the more important things is that it's not just predicting whether or not someone's going to donate or return to donate again. Because um, if all you can do is predict whether or not someone's going to donate, if there aren't any actions you can take on it, it's interesting, but it's not really that meaningful for your organization. So what we've tried to include in these models is have these sort of goals that you want to achieve. So for example, one thing that we found is that if someone's currently receiving emails from our organization, it tends to be a very significant predictor of whether or not they'll eventually donate. So one of the um, sort of the levers that we can pull is to try to get this person to enroll in emails. And so then we pass along a target list of people to say, our marketing team say, okay, if we can get these people to start enrolling, they might, might donate again. So if you can say, target it with Facebook ads, do whatever you need to do in your job, do, do the things that you're an expert in to try to get them to sign up for emails, eventually it can help us start converting these people into donors for the first time or repeat donors. Nice. So talk to me a little bit about segmentation. You have a massive list. How do you decide who and how to, to segment on this? Or does everyone just get the same suit? Well, I mean, realistically, in some ways, everyone does get the same suit. 
we are moving away from that because if you get blasted with 10 different emails for a bunch of things, it's what you're talking about earlier about just the massive amount of information and then this poverty of attention. So we're definitely very actively moving away from that and that's actually what we're working with the marketing team on for 2017. So some of the ways that we segment is to use actually the very models that we just talked about. So we'll get lead scores about people we collect. Um, and so from those lead scores, that's one means of segmentation. Because if you have a very low lead score and you have, and by lead score I just mean the likelihood that you'll return or that you'll donate. And so if it's zero or one, is it really worth the effort? And so maybe that's a win back strategy or a different type of messaging, so that's one group. If you're somewhere in the middle, then we'll treat you accordingly. There are also some other signals that we see. So if people have been involved in policy in the past, that's a particular signal. If they have participated in an event or they've watched a, a webinar or they get a lot of emails, we then kind of mash this up into different models that'll be like, these people are for marketing, these people probably benefit from a phone call and some better stewardship. So we'll look at it that way as well. Question over here. Uh, so are you following very specific people through your CRM and saying, these are the numerous ways that we've reached them, or you know, we sent them this, we sent them that, we reached them this way, and are you finding how they're returning with, you know, whether they responded to the email or whether they got a postcard and they said, yeah, they filled it in. Are you tracking that as well, with a lot of the manual stuff uh, in the CRMs, you know, to get to whether they're going to be a retention, whether they're a five-year donor, or whether they do it every 10 years. Is that how the data's coming up here? Well, in terms of the data that we have, the CRM is mostly, it's mostly just around giving behavior and contact information. We don't really use it in the sense that it's a marketing database where we're like, you had this mail and then you had this email and you responded or didn't respond, and that would be awesome. But we, we're not really in a place with, for that yet, so a lot of what we collect is mostly around giving behavior and then there are these, some of these actions like a webinar or an event, like if you went to the gala, we know that. Um, that we can then use. Yeah. So we're talking about a lot of dashboards and KPIs and things and blinking lights and yeah, sure, cool, but to the poverty of attention, putting that many data points in front of somebody may paralyze them ultimately. So what is, first off, your, both of you, favorite KPIs <laughs> for the purposes of fundraising? And then two, how do you avoid this poverty of attention through data fluency and the communication in, from dashboard to action? Let's start with you, Matt. Um, sure. So the first, second question was more along the lines of how do we... How do you make it useful, man? Yeah. Well, so that's actually something we struggled with a little bit when we first started rolling out Domo, where we would uh, make a bunch of different we call them cards and demos, or a chart or a table. We made a bunch of different cards for people, and you might think, oh, should I make this maybe a table? Should I make it a bar graph? Sometimes I might think, oh, why not make both? And what we ended up doing was people would log into demo, go to their dashboard, and they'd see just dozens and dozens of cards, and they get sort of overwhelmed and not really know what to do with it, and it turned out that they weren't really using demo anywhere near as much as we had hoped. So what we ended up doing was sort of two different things. First, we tried to make it sort of a goal-oriented approach, so each card that we make or each graph or chart should have some sort of action associated with it. So it could be, say, a blog post that's been doing really well, but maybe it's dropped off the radar. It maybe needs to be re-promoted in Facebook. Um, 
And the idea of if you see that, you might think, okay, I need to start re-promoting this one. But the idea is there's some sort of action you can take on it. Uh, second is to try to make them a little bit more interactive. So rather than showing someone, here is a number, now you see it, move on to the next card. We try to make it so that if, say, someone sees a bar graph of, say, um, email performance in various months, they can click on it and then see more detailed metrics for all the emails sent in that month. And I think, oh, maybe I should try, say, sorting by my click rates or by open rate. And we know that now that these cards have gotten a little bit more interactive, people are starting to look around in them more and start coming to us with a lot more follow-up questions than they were getting before when it was just, here's fact one, here's fact two, here's fact three, and we hope you enjoy them. So that's been very effective for us. Uh, the first, qu first question was about favorite, favorite KPI. KPI. You're not Desert Island. You're on a Desert Island. You only get one KPI. <laughs> no food, no shelter, KPI. <laughs> I was actually thinking about that on the couch. I was trying to think about what my favorite KPI was going to be. On the I think Island? It, yeah, stuff here does Island. I think about that a lot. <laughs> but it sort of depends on, on the team that we're working with. For example, if we're working with our communications team, they a lot of things that they work with isn't necessarily raising money. It's more just edu educating patients on Parkinson's. Um, if it's marketing, obviously the goal is to simply raise fundraising dollars. Um, I think if I have a single KPI, I could put it You were sitting on the couch this entire time <laughs> thinking about this topic. All right, we're going to throw it to <laughs> KPI on a desert island, what are you getting with regard to fundraising specifically that you can sort of guide the team with? So I really like lead time. I think it's it's a bit underrated. And also... What is lead time? So by lead time in this, in this context, I mean from the moment that you've provided an email or you've provided some sort of contact information that can validate that you're a real person, not like a bot on the internet, to the moment that you first donate or you take whatever that conversion action is. So that distribution actually tells you a lot because if, and it also varies by industry and mission and organization and so forth, but for us, if we know that within a year you should be donating and we have, we're sitting on your email and it's two years later, 14 months later, then that really already just tells us a lot in how you compare with our baseline population. Versus if you have a very short lead time and you've signed up and the next day you're donate, you've donated, that also indicates a very high level of excitement and energy. And so now as we go into more automated marketing and segmentation, we can put a different type of messaging in front of you. Maybe if you're that excited, you'll be interested in different events or research participation. Because there are so many different ways to get involved in the foundation, a lot of what, I don't want to not necessarily struggle with, but a lot of what we have to be very creative about is what action and what message do we then pair with that person? Because we can't offer one constituent like 30 things on the menu. If we had to pick three, how do we know which three? And so I think lead time is a good indicator of energy and excitement and also how you compare with the rest of the days. So follow-up question, what is your lead time? So if we're looking within our, just within our donor base, I think we're about 10 to 11 months. Mm -hmm. And then obviously, and so it follows a normal distribution, but. So it's not a bimodal where you have some immediately giving and then a trough? It's a happy little bend around that. Yeah, yeah. It's not like, oh, I signed up and I'm going to give immediately. People actually need to simmer for a little bit. A lot of that, I think, has to do with 
what out with what the Michael J. Fox Foundation does in doing in funding research for Parkinson's disease. You're dealing with a very particular mission. It's a chronic disease. There's a whole another set of emotions and processing that needs to happen. So it might very well be different in retail industry or in any other nonprofit where it's more, oh, this is interesting, let me just donate. This is actually something that for many of our constituents runs a lot deeper and so just needs some time. Awesome. Give a pause here for anybody in the audience that might have a question as we begin to move to a close question. What if you have a lead time of two months but need 23,000 donors? If you have a lead time of two months but you need 23,000 donors within those two months? I mean, there are ways to engage a lot of people at that kind of scale. I think using Google Analytics and Facebook and some of these other digital channels is a really great way to reach an enormous amount of people in a short amount of time. So I would use that to your, to your advantage. And if you are then doing a lot of this remark remarketing and you're tracking their experience, then you can reach out with certain reminders. If you know two months is the sweet spot, then you hit them right beforehand. Hey, remember me? Wouldn't you like to engage? And so forth. It's um, you know the question of how do I get a sudden surge of a, a small lead time? You're talking about some uh, aggressive outliers. We're talking about an ice bucket challenge. We're talking about a natural disaster. We're talking about being in the right place in the right time, which you can certainly do your best to prepare for, but there's obviously some fundamentals of luck here. This is ground up building a game you know that's going to work year after year and you build this over time so the the strong fundamentals of making sure you're collecting the right data in the right way the fundamentals of then asking the right questions i think are what ultimately you know you guys have definitely built an empire i'm going to say you had an unfair advantage to start with the, like the highest cruise score of a celebrity i think ever um, but beyond that i think you built an amazing foundation and then the system behind that uh, i'm a huge fan and uh, frankly, as we, any other questions, as we do, yep, yes. Oh uh, yeah, for smaller organizations, based off your experience, if you were, like, your team was dramatically scaled down to having less staff or less volunteer base, what strategies or tools would you prioritize, uh, try or goals would you prioritize uh, in regards to fundraising and resources? Sure, it's funny that you mentioned the amount of staff for analytics because this is it. Okay. <laughs> Just one If something were to happen right now, <laughs> the foundation staff. <laughs> Boom. Um, but in terms of priority, I mean, that's, that's something that we deal with every day. And I think you kind of deal with that question regardless of size. So you can't do everything. And so if you pick one thing. For us, it's been focusing on what the un just finding unmet needs and addressing them. So for instance, we know that there's a huge drop off between people who make their first and second donation. To what we were talking about earlier, people who give to you will, are, have already shown interest in donating, so that's, that's a really ripe pool of people. So a lot of these models and efforts are then understanding that and breaking it up into different categories, like is it this type of donor, is it a marketing donor, what's their, giving pattern like, how can we engage them better? So for us, it's been just prioritizing the biggest gap. Alrighty, so final question here is, what do you believe your organization should stop doing? <laughs> Don't worry, we're recording it. <laughs> and I'm gonna see your boss this weekend. 
She, she's right here. Do you have thoughts off the top of your head? Oh, I have a few thoughts, but you can go first. <laughs> I don't have thoughts off the top of my head. Um, so in terms of what our organization should stop doing, so this is a hard habit to break, and I myself have been guilty of it as well. When you're dealing with just like enormous amounts of data, it's very, very tempting to just dive in and search for patterns. Just fish around and hope that something pops out and says, yes, this is me. You, you figured it out and it only took you 20 hours in the spreadsheet. <laughs> so we do a lot of that, a lot of, and many of our projects have been to sort of make our teams more comfortable with a hypothesis-driven approach. So before even diving into, the, into whatever data you've collected, what are you actually interested in testing? So what is your hypothesis? What are you hoping to get? And then use that as a framework to then structure your analysis, interpret results, and then better understand what's going on. So I would love if we maybe took this like hypothesis-driven approach if that was the normal, the norm. I'd say inconsistent reporting criteria. It's difficult to do a lot of analytics when some people are defining um, a donor segment one way, another team is defining a donor segment in a different way. When you try to compare the results you're getting across the team, and you can't do it if three criteria are inconsistent. Right, so just like creating standards and accepted practices and structures. Yeah. We've got a fun year ahead. We still have things to do. <laughs> See, even top notch still has work to be done. Thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, final, how do people find you? How do people help you? Sure. So we're around after this if you want to find us immediately after. But also, you can visit the website, michaeljfox.org. Feel free to study our name tags. <laughs> Well, also we have like cards and information. Well, thank you for joining us for the podcast, and how well you live. covered a lot of topics here. Some may have gone over your head. Don't really worry so much about that. More, instead, focus on the fact that the underlying data they were looking at was who do we talk to, what have we said to them, and how do we make sure we retain them year over year? And then those aren't complicated questions. And when you start asking them, you realize, wait a minute, we just need to have a slightly better CRM system or keep, or keep track of the, of the calls, emails, and messages we're sending people a little bit better. And then when I come back to this question that I was, I was pushing to the audience at this uh, Whole Well You Live event, uh, the question I was pushing was, what is the 80-20 rule when it comes to your work around fundraising? What is the 80% of results you're getting from the 20% of work? And when you look at the, the data and you understand that, wait a minute, if there are high value net worth people here in our audience, if there is this literally like more than half of our audience potentially not returning as donors, where should I spend my time? Where should that 80-20 time be spent in order to get 80% of the results? Should it be spent on high level? Should it be spent on focused retention work, messaging? That's up to you to figure out. You can hear how some of these folks did it. And we're going to have our resources uh, from this podcast at episode 61, wholewhale.com slash podcast is where you can find it. Hope it was helpful. This 
This has been Using the Whole Whale. For more resources on today's show, please visit wholewhale.com slash podcast and consider following us on Twitter at Whole Whale. And thanks for joining us. Intro and outro music, the sweet dulcet tones of gregthomasmusic.org. If you're looking to do, maybe you're looking to do a fundraising video, I'll tell you what. Put a little Greg Thomas music behind it. It's going to do a heck of a lot better. I have no data to back that up whatsoever, but it's a good guess. <laughs> <laughs>